This is Daniel Fagella, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. This is episode four of five of our series, our special Thursday series here on generative AI and human reward systems. Our guest this week is one of the biggest names in AI ethics and certainly a credible voice in the technical world of AI. Dr. Francesca Rossi is the president of the American Association for Artificial Intelligence. She's an IBM fellow and an AI ethics global leader at IBM. She's involved on the steering committee and the global partnership for AI. And I could go on and on about other organizations. We met in Dubai at the World Government Summit, and I'm somewhat shocked she's yet to be on the podcast, but we finally got the excuse to get on the phone instead of just chatting on social media. And her perspectives on this series are more than valued. We dive into some of the changes that she foresees in terms of the core human experience when it comes to generative AI, virtual reality, and even brain-computer interface. And we outline a series of risks that I think are a pretty good hit list of some of the major considerations we're going to have to deal with as a species over the course of the next 10 or 20 years here. Towards the end of the episode, she brings up some great analogies for how we can carry the values we care about, whether it's privacy or human health or other things along those lines, into our future, even if they are radically transformative, even if they involve brain-computer interface She brings up what those tools and regulations and transitions have looked like in the past in terms of managing technologies and paints somewhat of a picture of how we might carry some of those same ideas forward to make sure that even if we do live radically different lives, even 10 years from now or 20 years from now, that we still might be able to live lives that protect what we care about most. Now, what we care about and how we define progress are open questions but I think you'll hopefully have more tools to think about those open questions when listening to some of Francesca's insights in this episode. If you'd like to see her quotes in context and get a deep dive into the full infographics that we've put together on this topic of generative AI and human reward systems, check out the full article with quotes from everybody in this series and the infographics we've put together at emerj.com slash reward. That's emerj.com slash reward. Be sure to stay in touch on social. I'll be posting about every single one of our guests. It's just Dan Fagella on LinkedIn. Francesca's obviously no exception. Check out my LinkedIn when you're listening to this. You're quite likely to already see something. Enjoy the conversation if you'd like. Otherwise, sit back and enjoy this conversation. This is Dr. Francesca here with us on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Francesca, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. Yes. It's been a while since we've chatted last, but we talked about some interesting things then, and now we have a great excuse to talk about some interesting things now. We've seen a lot come down the hill in terms of chat GPT and the the recent past here and generative AI in general. When you look forward to sort of where generative AI might be taking us and even where that might interact with VR and these kind of immersive worlds that are starting to come about, what do you sort of see coming? Is there anything that maybe you look at that you think other people aren't seeing? Okay, so I think that last time we we chatted, that was like before COVID, I think. It was, you know, the good old days, yeah. It was three or four years ago, but yeah. definitely it was a completely different world in terms of of AI. So yeah. many, many things have changed, you know, and very, very rapidly, many advancements. And of course, generative AI is one of the main ones. Yes. So definitely the technology has advanced a lot and you can see 
you know, you can make different judgments about uh, the capabilities of and the limitations of AI systems now versus what what we were talking about uh, yep. at then. But overall, I still see, in my mind, a trend towards making AI being more of a companion for human beings rather than an autonomous system making its own things and decisions. So the conversational aspect that is so central now, like with ChatGPT and other large language model, also shows you that really there is this uh, trend towards making AI more able to interact with human beings. So really to co-create, collaborate. And this can be useful, of course, in many, in many domains. Of course, the agent that you collaborate with, so the, the, the machine, you are a human being, the machine needs to be trusted that it's a good collaborator. Yes. So we still have a lot, a little bit to work on the on the reliability and trustworthiness of using that collaborator, especially in some domains like where the notion of what is true and what is false is important and you cannot make mistakes. So then in that sense, you know, we still need to, you know, to think about these capabilities and limitations. But definitely I still see a lot, like I was seeing then, trend and the need to use AI as something to augment our intelligence, our imagination, our creativity. And now with these new tools, we can do it even more, but we can we have to be even more careful than before on how we use them. Yeah, and we're going to get into some of those trust and ethics elements. Obviously, AI ethics is something that you're particularly known for. We're going to get deep into that. I want to continue to paint this vision. One thing you're touching on is when we spoke with Aditya Ramesh, who's created DALE2 over at OpenAI, we talked about this idea of a creative co-pilot. This is, I don't know, seven months ago or something like that. I think that you're touching on this similar idea, this idea of an extension of our own creativity and, and these technologies being a good example of that. There's going to be examples at work. There's going to be examples at home of sort of where these technologies come into play. Are there any particular areas, could be in life, it could be on the job, that that you think are interesting and worth talking about. We've talked to some people about, you know, the the idea of writing code, you know, obviously creating logos and architecture and graphics and things like that. But when you think about generative AI changing work or life, does anything jump out to you as a different future that people might not be seeing? Yeah, definitely. Like uh, the idea of a co-pilot in many different domains is is a good concept, I think, uh, that applies uh, to this kind of generative AI. Again, I tend to go always in this ethics side because, yes, for yes. example, a few months ago, I gave a presentation and this presentation was with support of slides and they were mostly visual. It was a TEDx talk, so TEDx slides, they are mostly visual. So every time I was introducing a new concept, I was introducing a new picture on the screen and all those pictures were generated with DALI. Yeah. And so those were amazing pictures. They were really able to capture the concepts that I wanted to talk about. But uh, of course, one could think, uh, okay, but maybe that's too easy. You know, if everybody would do like I did, what would happen to creative people? What would happen to the people that, make a living out of making good pictures, you know, and being used? Or what would happen 
not just to, to their business model of these people, but what would happen to the creative part of the society if we can be happy with the creativity that the machine can supply us with. So again, it's really a great support for more innovation and more creativity, whether they are images or text or anything else. But we cannot fall into the trap of being lazy and saying, oh, what they provide is creative enough, is innovative enough, because I don't think that uh, is too innovative. At least at this point, I think that, for example, every time I ask ChatGPT to give me like a five-point skeleton of a, of a talk about something, most of the times it gives me interesting and, you know, and, and reasonable five points. But they're not really surprising, no? Yeah. They're not. Oh, they're not making me think or something that I didn't think earlier. So that's where I see that. But definitely, there are many applications, many domains where this kind of AI can be very useful, even used in immersive environment, as you were mentioning earlier. For example, where there are people that need to do some um, manual task, but yes. they also would uh, appreciate having additional information while they do that manual task, like surgery or other a, things. A so plumber maybe are, or something, right? Sorry? A plumber, somebody working on pipes. Maybe right, right. Sure. So manual task, you have your full attention there, but you would also maybe uh, get some help with additional information that this technology can provide you while interacting with you. So I, I can see a lot of applications where this can be useful. Yeah. And well, you, you brought up an interesting point. We're going to get more into the immersive worlds in a second, but I want to touch on something that you brought up, which is that, you know, we, we can't kind of get lazy with these generative technologies. I think uh, a couple of thoughts came to my mind immediately. One was, One of them was, it might be true that ChatGPT won't always write something that's groundbreaking, but if we think about how fast this technology has developed in just the, the last two years, it kind of makes us wonder what the next two are going to look like and, and, and how, sur how surprising it very well may be. The other thing is, it seems to me like, I, I think of many risks, but I'm interested in your take here, many risks potentially about this technology, but leaning entirely on it and getting lazy with our own creativity didn't float to the top of my mind because I, I think what's going to happen is if you want to create the greatest architecture designs, you're not going to simply pipe them into the machine and just say, okay, we're good enough. The best humans are now going to be competing by combining human power and AI power. And it'll just be like with the CAD tools they have now, all the agencies that are doing design for architecture are going to be using them and trying to get better and find ways for humans to work with them better. So I, I don't know if there's that much risk of people turning off their creativity, but do you see potential areas where people well, might say I mean, it's good enough? That's maybe more of a longer term risk sure. compared to other risks in using generative AI. So more in the long term, you know, if more and more people are giving up in using their creative mind because they have this additional support, maybe in the longer term, you'll see some negative impact. Yeah. But maybe in the shorter term, I would say that the greater risk is definitely the lack of sense of truth and especially the text-based, you know, the large language models have. So, and, and again, the laziness in that sense can be much more dangerous because then you can 
use these technologies in domains where you cannot say true or false. So, for example, just to out of curiosity, I used, I think yesterday, I used the UChat, which is supposed to give you citations and references to sources. And so I asked if I, you know, myself, what awards I got during my career in for my work in artificial intelligence. And this is because I saw somebody else doing that. So I said, okay, let me try with myself. And the UChat gave me a list of awards uh, with citations to some papers of mine. And I got some awards in my career, but none of those that were listed by your child. Very strange. None. Okay. None. Yeah. So, so what I'm saying is that uh, then you need to couple this technology with, for now, humans or other agents that can check really for truthfulness and consistency. So yes. that, that's, I think it's a greater risk, you know, to, to especially in domains like science or uh, healthcare or others the way so for example there are people that ask chat gpt for recommendations on their health or what to do about their health problem and that can be risky you know unless you go and check oh but is this recommendation really what doctors really endorse right or not certainly and and we're we're going to dive right into the potentially some of the ethical pitfalls here, and you're bringing up some that are somewhat common. I want to circle back into that in just a second. Final thing on this kind of future vision, it sounds like you are also in line with this idea of the co-pilot and of, of AI being an extension of creativity in many regards. We've had the first interview in this series with fellow who heads up AI at the UN, who had some interesting thoughts around potentially the pull of these technologies when they're applied to a virtual world. So in other words, he had talked about this idea of people being able to not just create an image that they want, but wear a VR headset and walk around in a world that they want. Why would I walk around in my house when I could make it look like a castle? Why would I look out at the sky when I could have a dragon flying in the sky? Why listen to regular music when I could have AI generated music that got me excited if I was going to jump on a sales call? or relaxed me if it was coming into the evening? Why not live in a world custom tailored directly to me? And is there a chance that that space could actually could get relaxation done, could get excitement done, could get all kinds of other emotional satisfactions done better than the real world because it's tailored entirely to the individual? Do you see that as unrealistic or do you see that as something that we might be walking into? Well, I don't see that unrealistic, but I see it as undesirable in the sense that, so in some sense, you are you are describing this possible future yes. as an expansion of our dreams. You know, we dream during the night and we create these, you know, fantastic worlds that where everything happens and it doesn't need to satisfy the laws of physics yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Mm. And so you're saying, oh, now I have a way to recreate that, uh, even when I'm awake, in some sense, and also to be like to be telling that machine or oh, what I want to see. I mean, so I don't want to see a nightmare. I want to see something nice. I want to see something relaxing. I want to see something. So I don't see that unrealistic in the future. But really, again, I wonder whether. I mean, it has to be taken really with uh, some limitations. 
because uh, I can see also a very realistic addiction that maybe it's something that we don't want to have in our life, especially for some. So, I mean, of course, if you need to relax, it's okay. There are also already pills to relax or there yeah. are pills to be able to sleep more, better and so on. But even with these drugs, you know, you don't want to exaggerate or be addicted to them. Yes. That would be something I think that's not desirable. In, you know, not desirable if the goal is not the technology, but the goal is that human beings live a better life, a more aware, they're more conscious and they improve themselves and they have a better knowledge of themselves and so on. If this is our goal, I think that exaggerating with that, I don't think I, it would be desirable. Well, I think there's there's multiple sides to this coin. So I, I can very much see your argument, and it's one that I often think of myself, which is that these technologies would then, for excitement, they would crank up our dopamine levels, and, and maybe for relaxation, we wouldn't be able to relax unless we were, we were in this hyper-customized. I can imagine the colors, the sounds, even the feelings with some kind of haptics totally tailored to my real-time biofeedback to relax me. And that could be wonderful, but what if I could never relax without that? What if it what if it lifted me to that level? That might be dangerous. So I see your point. I think the devil's advocate point we've heard, and I love your thoughts on this, is that you and I, right now, we live lives that if we went back 80 years and we talked to your grandparents or my grandparents and we said, hey, you know, Daniel or Francesca, they're, they're not born yet, you don't know them, but they're going to spend 15 hours a day on screens. And they're going to fly in these giant metal tubes all the way to Japan and other crazy places. And they're going to be talking with little video screens to other people all the time. It's going to be very, very common for them. And they're going to be carrying other screens in their pocket. And that's going to, they're going to meet their spouses on these things. And they're going to, all this. If, if you just explained even a little bit of that, they would say, this sounds like a kind of hell. And this is absolutely wrong. And they would probably say two things. It, it's probably technically impossible and it's probably morally wrong. They would describe the world we live in that way. I wonder. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, I mean, I understand your point. And I wonder if the future isn't the same way. In other words, if we live in these kind of immersive VR worlds, almost in a husk, where our excitement, our relaxation, even our productivity are all cranked up through the ceiling and we become somewhat dependent on the technology, but the people that stay off like the Amish and they're milking their cows and making cheese are probably not going to have much of a say in the future if all the most productive and creative people are kind of in this other world. So there is that devil's advocate argument. Do you think there's a middle ground there or, or maybe a counter to that that position? Well, of course, the way we live evolves, evolves as evolved, as you mentioned. You know, we don't live the same as our even one generation ago, not, not even much, a lot of years ago. Even even if I compare to uh, how my parents were living, definitely were living very differently with much less technology. And yeah, they would, I mean, now they are okay with, the, they have accepted the, the use of the technology in my life and yes. in their life for some, maybe less. But yes, definitely things have evolved a lot. So it may be that, yes, you're right. So it may be that, my uh, resistance or my undesirability of those is because 
I'm afraid of what can happen if in that evolution in the future, and I would like to shape that evolution or give boundaries to that evolution, because maybe I, I feel that some trajectories are bad for human beings, but maybe they are not bad, or maybe that's what human beings want, or yeah. uh, they, that's what they gradually one step one you know and it's kind of a slippery slippery yes, slope yes. Uh, we go and you know accept and and actually desire more and more so i cannot tell you why but i don't know i have in mind also even some movies about you know <laughs> these immersive scenarios i think yes. there is a movie with bruce willis that he was that everybody was living inside their bedroom connected in an immersive scenario robot, but the, only yes. the avatars only the avatars were in this yes. in the streets and they yep, were yep. fighting each other so i don't remember the name of the movie so i don't know i mean i wouldn't uh, it may be that compared to how my parents were living we are in that trajectory a little bit because yes i'm <laughs> spending most of my time in my in screen, office yes. at home and, uh, yes exactly the screen yeah but I think that with the technology presence in our life accelerating so fast, I think we have to a bit reflect about where we want to go. Then maybe we can even decide that that's where we want to go. But I think that we need to stand back and say, okay, here things are going fast. Maybe we don't have time to think. Let's give us time to think or which are the trajectories that we would like and which are the other ones that maybe we like less. I love the word trajectory. This whole series, I really think about very much as painting the trajectory. And you would not be the first person to argue that, well, I really appreciate your reflection of like, oh, well, you know, we are pretty living pretty different than our grandparents. But I, I, I would say you're also not the first person to say that there may be cause for asking the question, where is this stuff taking us? And that's the purpose of this series. And I think maybe there's much more time we should do about that. Before we get into maybe some of the the positive futures we might want to move towards, we can touch a little bit on some of the elements of near-term you know, downsides or things that you're looking at. Now, I, I guess I'll put in a caveat here. I don't see AI ethics as necessarily always the enemy of innovation or just down-talking the companies that are innovating, whatever, right? You're a very innovative person and you do AI ethics. So I see AI ethics and innovation as kind of working hand in hand. But you're very deep in that space, speaking to leaders, addressing what the real concerns are in the enterprise and in the scientific world, which you're very close to. What do you see as some of the risks that people are most concerned with? You brought up truth. Maybe we can explore that. And maybe there's some others as well. Let me know what you'd like to discuss. Oh, well, I mean, again, if, you, if we see AI as a co-pilot, a collaborator, then there are some risks that should be avoided. One thing is, as we mentioned, that you would like your copilot to, to be reliable, maybe yes. uh, in a complementary way compared to me. But I will, so maybe I can do some things that he cannot, he or she cannot do, and the opposite. But at least it has to be reliable, and I need to be able to trust this copilot. So I, I need to know that he has the same sense of what is tr truth that I have and uh, that can do some logical reasoning, uh, at least follow some logical chain of reasoning uh, in the same way that I would do, because otherwise I have, will have trouble relying or yes. uh, the, you know, letting, letting it do something on my behalf. 
another thing that we touched upon is the issue of addiction, as I said, which we mentioned, especially in immersive environment. But also with the co-pilot, we have to be careful about the de-skilling also. No? So I wouldn't like human beings to be de-skilled in things where, again, it has to be a conscious decision. There yeah. are some things that, for example, I am compared to many years ago or probably compared to the previous generation, like, I don't know, making complex arithmetic operation. We don't do them by hand or with our mind. <laughs> yeah. We do them with, you know, with our phone. Put the, and so definitely there are some things that we are less used to do now. But so we have to understand where the de-skilling is a risk and try to avoid it. Another one, as I said, in the more longer term is really to use generative AI in a lazy modality, which in the longer term, I think it would stall innovation and creativity, while instead they can be a really great support for additional innovation and creativity. So there are some values, I think, that we realize that, yes, we want to progress with the technologies and processes, innovative things, but we want to protect those values and we are protecting them. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I want to make sure we can unpack that. I think that's a great point and it'll, it'll make us think a little bit about what do those look like into the future? What are the new kinds of nutrition labels in the maybe virtual world that are yeah, going to have to yeah, be invented? Right. I think that's a really cool analogy. I like that analogy a lot. So what we can probably do is we can, you are, you unpack the addiction side of things a little bit. You unpack the untruth things a little bit. Well, do you want to bring up that idea of values we want to protect when we start to look at a maybe positive future? Do you want to bring it up in that context or do you want to bring it up as a risk? What would be better for you to unravel that idea? I mean, the idea to bring it up is to show that we can evolve. We should not be afraid of evolving if we have a clear idea of what are the values that we want to protect because we can protect them and we have been doing that. Okay, so we have a lot to unpack here. Addiction in particular, I definitely want to go a little bit deeper with, but I know you know we had even talked a little bit beforehand around the idea of brain-computer interface. You know, Neurotechnology was brought up in the first episode of this series let me know some of your thoughts around that, because there's obviously the opportunity for it to maybe combine with AI in different ways. What are potential risks that jump out for you there? Right. Yes, definitely AI will be uh, be used more and more in combination with other technologies. And one of them that is still does not have the mass adoption, like in AI, is neurotechnology. So there are a lot of companies that are trying to, you know, to build products. Some of them are in the healthcare domain, so they are regulated by the regulations that are already there in that domain. But others are in the well-being domain where it's less regulated mm -hmm. because it doesn't fit into the healthcare. So, the, and, and in both cases, it will be combined with AI because neurotechnologies collect a large amount of data from which you can infer things and you can try to help people. So there is a lot that can be done on the positive side here, combining AI with neurotech. Like an example is these closed loops where they collect the data from people's nervous system 
to realize, for example, that somebody is having an epileptic attack and try to mitigate it or to moderate the tremor in Parkinson's disease. So there are a lot of these closed-looped applications that definitely are very beneficial and will be more and more. But definitely there is a risk there because on top of what we think are the possible risks of the misuse of AI, there are risks of impacting on mental privacy and human identity because these closed loops, they are closed just because there is the reading part of the data from the nervous system, but then there is the writing part. So that can make people feel like they are not themselves anymore, even though maybe some health issue had been mitigated. And also the reading part also has some issues of mental privacy. So definitely there are some more issues to be considered and where solutions need to be found. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've got deep brain stimulation for depression, for example. You've got folks at BrainGate here pretty close to Boston in my home state of Rhode Island. They're moving people's robotic arm around paralyzed yeah. folks and feeding themselves with a spoon. And it's, it's, it's all leveraging AI and it's very, very complicated. But to your point, if there are loops, Maybe there's ways to manipulate those. Those are new gateways into privacy, into health issues and things along those lines. So let's, we'll break some of these apart because there's so many good ones here for us to at least give some thought to for the audience. You mentioned the idea of addiction. We're, you know, what it seems like to me, Francesca, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, is that there might be an opportunity to do what, what we're sort of referring to now playfully as closing the human reward circuit. So, Right now, when I have a desire to feel relaxed or excited or whatever the case may be, you know, maybe I'll watch something on Netflix or maybe I'll go for a walk in the woods and hopefully it gets the job done. I'm not really sure. But in the future, there might be a space where if I want to be relaxed, I have audio, video, colors, even somatic experiences that are getting real-time biofeedback, you know, eye movement feedback, et cetera, and are almost certain to relax me because it'll be hyper-calibrated to me. Same thing with humor, same thing with maybe learning, and it, whatever emotional drive I want to fulfill, I'll almost be able to feel it. We, we act the way we act to fulfill our drives. It feels like there could be an upside here, but also a danger of, man, if we can just satisfy the feelings we want, why would you go into the hard world and do hard things? Do you see this as an unrealistic threat or something at least worth considering? No, it is definitely worth considering in the sense that it is a possible future, but we just need to be, as a society, we just need, I mean, just is not the right word. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's very complicated, but we need to be, much more aware of what are the values that we want to preserve, protect, and support in whatever evolution of this life together with the technology, with the, with the evolving technology. Well, I, yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally with you. And I know we're going to get more into values. We have some interesting things to unpack together on that. I know that today. I think, you know, today, if I just think about freezing time today, there are already people that are trying to get this done. In Japan, they have this big issue with hikikomori, these people who essentially live in their parents' house until they're 50 years old or their parents die. They just play video games and watch pornography and, and, and step away from the world. And there's no law where we have to kick these people out and force them to carry rocks or something, right? You're allowed to do that. It's a, you know, it's a democratic society. 
And so maybe a value here is autonomy. Of course, we do value productivity, but people get to make their own choices. It seems to me like there might be more than a personal value. There might need to be a societal level effort to ask when people enter these immersive systems, if the appeal to just purely drink in experience and contribute nothing back to the real world is strong enough, we won't have enough people to keep up this big fancy technological society. You know, we, we need to keep people sort of, sort of working because the, the appeal, and you mentioned brain computer interface. If they can, if right now they're solving depression with a very brute force, you know, drive some stimulus into some, some rough yeah. areas in the brain that we think will help. But if it gets much better than that, and I could feel excited when I want, and I could feel fulfilled when I want without having to go win that big sales deal, without having to hire that person or, you know, give that big speech or whatever. If I could just feel those feelings, to your point, the values we want to protect, it seems like maybe one of those is, are you still contributing in some way to the societal yeah. animal that you're a part of? Of course, contribution to society. So it's not just individuals. What you're saying, and I agree, is not just individual values, but societal values. Yeah. And in some societies, in some, we know that in some regions of the world, the priority is more towards individual values. In other regions of the world, in more towards societal values. But definitely, every society must have a, its own balance, its own weights given to these two kinds of values, individual or societal, because, yeah, an individual may may decide to just spend all his time, you know, fulfilling its own desires and needs and so on, but it is living in a house. Somebody has to build the house. It is, the house is heated. Somebody has to build yes. some heating system. So it is... Taking advantage of the fact that not everybody is spending all his life, you know, yes. in these uh, closed loops of self-fulfillment of its own desires, right? And I don't, I'm, with that, I don't want to say that some people need to be forced to do things that they don't want to do, of course. But I'm saying that uh, a lot of the population also finds reward and satisfaction in doing things that are contributing to the society. Like, you know. Yes, yes. Like moving forward the sciences or yeah, you know, doing right. things in business. I think right. the the risk and the danger that we try to get into in the bigger article that this is all part of is that if I can sell the company, discover the new physics principle, all these things in a super immersive, super rich way, and you know, Mariah Carey from nineteen ninety eight falls in love with me, you know, all these different things happen at once. And every day I can have a new combination of that stuff. That even the drive towards ambition if that itself, if the, the productive drives are able to spin in a little dark corner, that there's some real danger that we're going to lose productive social yeah. juice. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm with you that there's something there. Last thing I'll touch on before we get into positive futures, you brought up this idea that, you know, if we rely on these technologies potentially too much, there might be a, a risk of losing our creativity. You know, if everything we create, we just push a button and it's there, where do we fit in? I've seen a lot of different conversations around this for writing, for example. People have said, hey, kids at school, they're going to push a button and have an essay, and they'll do a little bit of editing on it, and then that's it. That's not the same. Or they're going to, you know, instead of reading a whole article, they're going to have the whole article, you know, that might be 12 pages, turned into a 45-second really engaging video in a super specific way that's going to give them the summarized bullet points for them to remember, but they're not going to use the discipline to read the whole thing. I've heard other people say, hey, if you can read those articles faster and it can capture more of your brain space with memory, 
through drinking it in with AI and through creating with AI, the most productive people are going to be drinking in and pouring out their thoughts and information from the world coming into them and the information they're putting out to the world through these these AI lenses. And the most productive salespeople, developers, politicians, whatever, they're going to be doing that like it or not. I've had other people say, no, that's not necessarily the case. What, what are your thoughts there? Because there's really different visions of whether this is good or bad. I mean, I, I think that uh, maybe the most innovative people will use this system more and more to enhance their innovativity and creativity. But then there is a danger that uh, for the vast majority of people that are very busy, they don't have time, and they can get lazy in some sense and just you know use these tools uh, even though they don't provide the best essay, the best whatever solution to a problem, but maybe just use it and, and then move on. And if students do that, especially in those years where they should develop their capabilities and understand what they like, what they like to do, what they're passionate about, then there is the danger then they will not be able to do that if those years are spent in being lazy with the with tools like that okay because those years are years where we really say okay i want to be creative in that space and this is what i'm passionate about and in order to do that you need to really work hard into one space right so those tools use misused uh, as you you know misused in a way that you just take their output and just use it as it is or with a little uh, tweak they may in my view have created this possibility of people growing up without putting emphasis on creativity innovation and hard work also in that space well and i think I can remember, you know, when I was even in middle school, you know, and I think there was a search engine called Lycos back then, you know, there were certainly teachers that we had that were like, hey, you know, you guys are never using the library. You're clicking on whatever links are showing up. You know, are you really thinking, you know, are you really using your brain? And I look back and I say, well, I think I was. But it is reasonable to ask, is there a line that we can cross where actually it's so much of a crutch that we're losing some strengths. You know, that's always the fear, but, but you know, is there some real merit to it? I, I would agree with you. I think that there's open questions there. And that brings us to our final point around the kind of future we want to walk into. You and I talked a little bit off microphone around some of what human beings have done to ensure their values into the future. And I'd love for you to lay out some of the analogies there, and then maybe some of your thoughts around how generative AI and and these other future technologies, where this might lead to a positive future. I'd love to get the, those analogies from you. Sure. Yeah. So we, uh, so this idea that uh, our way of living is evolving, and we are not living like one generation ago or two generation ago, and probably the life that we live uh, is not a life that those people would have liked. You know, they would see it very alienated from yes. real reality. You know. And so we are afraid that this will happen also in the future. So what, what can happen you know, in one or two generations or even less? And definitely, you know, life, way of life will be evolving. But I have seen also, looking back, that if we want to protect some values that we, we really care about, we can do that. Even 
allowing life to evolve and technology to be more and more part of our life. And uh, technology has been used in some of these cases as a way of uh, bringing positive and risky misuse possibly, but it was also used as uh, an additional protection towards, together with other complementary solution, towards the protection of these values. An example uh, maybe is privacy. So right now, I mean, every data that we that we provide or we upload somewhere, you know, so we have something, some regulation or technology itself that protects that data, that gives some rules about how that data can be used. This was not the case one generation ago. We didn't have enough of the technology to really allow us to upload so much data. So maybe we didn't need more exactly, protection. Yeah. But now that we have, we also have more protection through regulation and technology itself on privacy. Another example is human agency, at least in some areas, through transparency. So for example, I don't know, my grandparents were buying their eggs from the farmer next door. So they knew that this egg was safe because maybe they knew the person that was, you know, owning those chickens and so on. But now with technology over time, we are not buying anymore the egg from the, the neighbor, the farmers in the next door. So we don't know where the eggs come. So what we did was to put in place some transparency mechanisms to like the nutrition labels that allow us to know what we are buying, you know, in terms of food. And so they give us more agency in deciding whether we want to buy it or not, because we know what is inside and what effect can have on our body. So over time, even in that case, this value of human agency through transparency has been protected and supported even more compared to what we were doing generations ago when there was no need because the technology would not allow to buy the egg from I don't know whom. Yeah, uh, yeah. So the technology was incorporated into our way of life and of distributing eggs or whatever, but also through technology and other complementary solution, we could protect this human agency value. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, and we can only imagine, I guess, the versions of that moving forward. We're going to, you know, you're bringing up important points of the human, you know, transition of the human experience where maybe new problems came up, maybe new threats to values came up, threats to our health, you know, back in the day, you know, to your point, People didn't know where they're buying their food. Even worse than that, back in the day, people were put, they were selling milk, but it was half glue, and there was no laws against it. You could just sell like glue, glue water, and and have people buy it and make money. And so we have new regulatory bodies. We have nutrition labels. We have laws to protect individual users and privacy. It almost makes me wonder, you know, as we start to enter these immersive worlds that make us most likely vastly more productive in terms of our ability to be a scientist, be a business person, whatever it is, and also potentially are vastly, extremely enjoyable, very fulfilling to our certain drives. I wonder what sorts of things we might have to do to protect certain values. Are there any immediate thoughts for you about entering these immersive generative spaces? Yeah. So, well, one thing that is really analogous to what we did with food is really to have you know 
kind of nutrition labels, like we call, for example, in my company, we call them AI fact sheets, but I mean, it can be anything, you know, something that really communicates the capabilities and limitations of the AI that is being used by somebody else to build an applications in some domain. So that is already very analogous to what we did with nutrition labels in food and allows really to show the possible risks in using and the appropriate and inappropriate uses of this piece of technology. So in general, you know, as you said, technologies opens up the the set of possibilities that we have but some of these possibilities we are going to restrict through regulation others through standards and others those that we don't want with technology itself so there is these socio-technical problems that are created by the pervasive use of technology that can be addressed also with socio-technical solutions. So standards, regulations, best practices, yep. and technology itself. Yeah, and we've had some folks from the IEEE on. I know you have done some work in sort of the standards world. I think it's it's to be seen exactly how that will manifest. If we have a little bit of time for some closing notes for policy thinkers, business folks, who are who are hoping to build a future that's maybe better, I think we'd all maybe hope that, and maybe they're also thinking about the values they want to ensure into that future. Is there anything that you hope that kind of business and tech people bear in mind as we enter the next, you know, five years ahead? And any anything you want to leave people with at the end of our episode here? Well, I mean, in terms of business value, I think that AI itself, we know that it has a lot of business value, but AI done in the right way and used in the right way has even more business value and also supports societal progress and humanity progress where technology can support that. So to me, I think that, uh, I mean, maybe that's not too clear to some part of the businesses. Still, some of the businesses may think that uh, this AI ethics uh, kind of activities or restrictions are pushing to a different direction compared to business, you know, improving the business yeah. value. But in my view, instead, they are going in the same direction. So you don't want to constrain what can be done with technology or whether if it can be done or not. We, we just want to make these, these business deals or business opportunities better. Better for those that produce the business opportunity, better for those that use it, and better for society as well. So I don't see AI ethics as pushing in an opposite direction as business value, but I hope that more and more business leaders can understand that. Yeah, and I, I think, well, I'm, I, I think you bring up some interesting points about progress. I think some of us would say that leaning back in some kind of a husk and being totally immersed in a virtual world could be progress. Others would say that's sacrilegious and terrible. I think defining progress is it will be a, a moving target as it always has been for humanity. But to your point, I think there is a way to consider all the stakeholders involved and, and make that actually part of innovation in a way that's aggregately good. I certainly hope that, that it can be that way. And I think if more business people think of it that way, there's probably no harm in that. So Francesca, I know that's all we have for time, but we got to unpack so much that was a lot of fun. I'm really grateful we got to chat today. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Dan.
And that's a wrap for episode four of this five-part Thursday series. I hope you've enjoyed these chats thus far. This is certainly taking us a little bit outside the beaten track of just pure business applications. But ultimately, I think this is some of the most fun work that we do here. And stretching our thinking to ask the question, where is this technology taking us, I think is particularly important. Very, very grateful for Francesca's insights in this particular series as well. Stick around for next Thursday as we get to episode five of five. In one of our previous AI Future series, we ended on some of the most wild, futuristic insights of the entire series. In this series, we end by grounding all of these ideas about generative AI back to the C-suite and back to business. We have one of the biggest thinkers in big data analytics and AI with us on the program, arguably one of the best known business authors out there. And that final episode puts a bow on this series by tying it back to what we can do now as leaders to make productive use of these technologies in the face of the wild changes of the future that we're up against coming up. So I hope you'll stick with us for next Thursday's episode, the final episode in the series. And otherwise, stay tuned next Tuesday. We'll be back to our normal cadence of AI use cases and trends here on the AI Business Podcast. Thanks so much for being with us. I look forward to catching you soon.